The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, I am looking forward to 1 Peter. That's where we're going to go today. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter and you might... uh, You might look at Luke 5 as well, or just kind of mark Luke 5 as we look at who is Peter. But before we do that, there are four things I need to talk about today. And the the first of those is Bill and Christy Bowers sitting right back here. Bill and Christy, would y'all just stand up for a second? Bill and Christy and their kids serve the Lord Jesus Christ in Lebanon. They've been doing that for a long time, and we've had the real privilege of having them with us this year, and they uh, they leave from here to go to Lebanon today, and they've been here for years serving Jesus, helping us grow in Christ, serving the Lord here in Central Texas, just like they do in the Middle East. So could we just give them some appreciation and love as they go? Thank you. Thank you. Thank y'all. We ask the Lord to be with you and to guide your steps as he has been as you go. We appreciate y'all. Um, we've got this Ukraine food drive going and want to say a big thanks. You guys are, are bringing in lots of food and non-perishable items that have been great. We're packing those, getting those prepared. We need more and we need volunteers to help with that. You can go to the hub to volunteer, to donate, to find out more. Um, So that's number two. Number three is a thank you and a continued request. We asked for volunteers for Launchpad for our children's ministry. And many of you have shown up to do that. You've signed up, you've been trained, you've been background checked. We so appreciate that. We need more volunteers to do that. And we want to say also just a big thank you to parents that you would entrust us with your kids for about an hour and a half on Sunday morning. We really hope that we love them well and then we help them know and grow Jesus coming alongside you to do that. So thank you, parents. And the last thing is just a big thank you to, to you all working with other churches. Did I say you all? I meant y'all. Sorry about that. <laughs> working with other churches in our area, TBC, which is, is all of you, uh, donated over 200 backpacks, school supplies to kids, along with other churches, over 1,500 in our city. So thanks for showing up. It's great when the body of Christ throughout a city works together like that, and we just praise God for it. Um, well, we're in First Peter 1. And we're going to talk about who is Peter today, and we're just going to look at the first two verses, and we'll kind of make a, a brief excursion into Luke 5 as we do that. Peter is writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They're in this area called Asia Minor, and the guy writing to them is known as Simon Peter, or Simon, or Peter, or Simeon, or Cephas. He's part of Jesus' inner circle of three. He's one of only three disciples who was part of the transfiguration and saw Jairus' daughter healed, and then he was part of that sleepover known as Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. And Jesus says he's the rock. He was the original rock long before this guy was the rock. He's one of the leaders of the early church. And when you think about strength and the rock, Peter died a martyr's death at the hands of Nero, probably crucified upside down between 64 and 68 AD. 
He had this boldness in preaching Christ in hard circumstances and spiritual awakening that happened when he preached that we just stop. And today, 2,000 years later, we marvel at the work of God in his life. And Peter writes this letter as a man who has surrendered to Jesus. He is satisfied in the love of Jesus Christ. He is suffering for his name and he's longing to see his friend and savior again face to face. He's a fisherman. He's a common man. He grew up in a fishing village. This is uh, his traditional place of birth in Bethsaida. It's on the north of the Sea of Galilee on the northern coast. And then as he grew up somewhere along the way, he moved to Capernaum and he's living there with his wife and his mother-in-law when he runs into Jesus and connects to him. And there's this traditional site. Now there's a church over it with a glass floor. So you can see this is his traditional home site in Capernaum. His brother, Andrew, is a disciple of John. Peter is not. He's got the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Peter's the first person out loud, first disciple to confess Jesus as Christ, and then he promptly rebukes Jesus and says uh, he's called Satan by Jesus, actually, which is not a good thing, right? Listen, he even tries to rebuke the resurrected Jesus in Acts 10, verse 14, which again is not a good thing to do, but we've all tried to do that as well, right? He walked on water and he walked away at the most intense moment. He cut off a prayer meeting by falling asleep and he cut off a servant's ear when Jesus was arrested. He spoke to Gentiles about Jesus, but then he refused to eat with Gentiles. He has the distinct honor of being one of the only people in the history of the world to be publicly rebuked by both Jesus and the Apostle Paul. He's transformed by the power of the gospel, but he struggles with legalism and racism. He's sifted by Satan. He's strengthened by his brothers. He's imprisoned for the gospel. He's rescued by an angel. He is an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's an interesting guy. He becomes a giant of the faith, but he's not always a giant of the faith. And I just want to think for a moment about guys like Peter, his brother, Andrew, and James and John, they're, they're fishing partners. Peter's a little rough around the edges. Andrew is an avid indoorsman. James and John, they're the sons of thunder. If you come at them, they will show you their hands, right? And culture doesn't know what to do with young men like this today. There are a couple of stereotypes and one is vaping in his room, reading a book. He probably lives in his mom's basement and culture just dunks on this guy and makes fun of him. And then there's this other stereotype that is, it's called toxic, it is toxic and culture just hates young men right now. Sometimes around here, I've heard it for 15 years, I still hear it. Hey, Chase, where, where are all the young guys at? Where are, the, where are the young guys at? And I've always been confounded by that question. When I hear it now, I kind of go, okay, well, like, do you mean Sam and Miles, Morton and Shadrick, Richard, Danny, Brad, Rob, Will, the list goes on and on, Mark Rojas, Brandon, Wes. You can't mean those guys, they're old, right? That can't be who you're talking about. Okay, well, who are you... Where are the young guys like Lucas or Seth or the other Seth or Luke or Philip or Chris or Nathan or Andrew or Matt or Ryan or Tharp or Merrick or Miller or TJ or Tucker? I mean, you could just keep going. The answer is they're right over there in the 930 service and 11, 
o'clock service. And with them, there's married guys, there's single guys, the married ones have amazing wives, there's single ladies that are right there, there's a ton of college students that are following Jesus and some high school students that are uh, following Jesus. And can I just just stop for a minute to say thank you. Uh, We're just grateful for you. Um, uh, we, we praise God for y'all and, uh, and we're excited about how you serve Jesus, how you love one another, how you serve in the community and some of you in the world and we just rejoice. See, culture doesn't know what to do with these people and it's not that they're perfect, right? Don't hear me to say that you're perfect, right? Not even you, Philip, okay? But here's, here's the thing. Culture doesn't, doesn't know what to do with these people, but Jesus does. Jesus looks at them and says, you follow me. You come with me, and from now on, you'll be catching men. He shows them who they are and who they're meant to be. He shows them who they are and who they can become in him. He shows them what life is meant to be about. He utterly transforms Peter and Andrew and James and John, the deepest parts of who they are so they're not passive or aggressive. And he shows them what life looks like when you follow him and the most practical of ways as well. And so Peter, because of his union with Christ, is going to be transformed in such a way that we see what it looks like when the Spirit of God and the Word of God change a man to be a force for the glory of God in the world. And so over 33 years, 34 years, somewhere around there, that's been happening in Peter's life. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. He denies Jesus. He sees Jesus risen from the dead. He preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 people get saved. He grows into this church leader with ups and downs. It's not perfect, but it's trending upward toward Christ. And so he sits down with a scribe named Silvanus and he writes a letter to these readers and he tells them to be holy, to be set apart and he tells them they're gonna suffer. In fact, we know, it, we know this is a book with five chapters, it's a letter, and eight times in this letter, eight times in this letter, he tells them you're going to suffer. And here's the truth, he's going to invite them to join him in surrendering to Jesus, being satisfied in his love, suffering for his name until they see him face to face. That's what he wants them to do when he writes this letter, to surrender to Jesus, to be satisfied in his love, to suffer for his name until they see him face to face. If he were writing to us, I think that's what he would want us to do as well. Well, why all the talk about suffering? I think there are a couple of reasons that it could be, but it specifically is what they're going through. One of two things is happening, and they're similar. They're not exactly the same, but they're similar. In AD 61, there was a persecution that began, and it was in Asia Minor, but it was not empire-wide, and people don't really know who started this persecution. Josephus referred to this as the third scattering or the third persecution. Some people believe that the high priest in Jerusalem is pressing on the Roman governor of Judea And in trying to appease, he sends word to push out these people of the way in Asia Minor. This this high priest is going to keep pushing on the governor, though, and Rome is going to sack Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Suffering is coming to the people of God. 
In AD 64, empire-wide, persecution breaks out under Nero that's diabolical. Christians were lit on fire, dipped in tar, lit on fire, and used as lamps at Roman dinner parties. Peter knows something like this is going to happen. He knows it because he's been with Jesus, right? That's what the Sanhedrin said about Peter when he and John are going to the temple after Jesus rose from the dead. There's a poor man or a lame man there that is asking for money and they say, hey, we don't have any money, but let us give you what we have in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he does. And so the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they beat them, tell them to stop talking. And Peter says, we can't stop talking about what we've seen or heard. There's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved except the name Jesus. And they marveled that they had been with Jesus. See, Peter has been with Jesus. He knows Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. And Jesus told his followers they would go through intense suffering. They would be brought before kings and governors for his sake. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. So these people do not have the compiled New Testament yet. So some of them hearing the stories, reading the letters, they would have been expecting Jesus to come back soon. Some of them thought this was the tribulation he spoke of as the New Testament is still written. Well, as they suffered, there were three things they ought to know and there are three things we ought to know. Number one, suffering ought to make us long for home. Not the old Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Suffering ought to make us long for home. It ought to make us pray and labor and live for the return of Jesus Christ. Number two, suffering is used by God to set us apart. Trials refine us. Every author in the New Testament tells us that we are going to suffer. We don't talk about it enough. Forgive me for that, forgive us for that, but we are going to suffer and suffer is meant to set us apart. James and Peter and Paul tells us that suffering is gonna produce endurance in us and when people endure suffering well, it looks different, it's supernatural, it doesn't look like the world. So we learn to serve in the strength God supplies and speak his word in bold and loving ways and suffer for the sake of righteousness. The third thing that we need to know is that when we suffer, we shouldn't be surprised. Those are the exact words Peter is going to use. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal you're going through. Brothers and sisters all over the world are enduring this same sort of thing. And here's just the truth about us. We, we tend not to suffer well, right? We tend not to suffer well. And we wring our hands and we act like we deserve better. We're surprised by it and we're afraid. And we live in fear instead of faith. People come to chase, aren't you, don't you think just culture is just such a bad place? Yeah, absolutely. Well, aren't you afraid this is gonna happen? No, I'm I'm not afraid. I'm afraid of three things in ascending order, snakes, spiders, and making my wife mad, right? That's what I'm afraid of. Well, are you just some crazy optimist? Absolutely not. Jesus rose from the dead. And we labor because Jesus rose from the dead. And when we labor, we labor in strength God supplies. That is literally God the Holy Spirit at work in us. And he's not going to fail. So we can live without fear in a broken world. 
That's what Peter's gonna tell these people to do. They are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, where is that? It's in Asia Minor. You can see it's this area just south of the Black Sea. That's where these people are. And theologians argue about who Peter is writing to, and some would say, well, obviously, he's writing to the Jews because verse one says he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. The, the problem is there are Jews that are dispersed here, but this, this place is full of Gentiles. So who's he writing to? Well, theologian Karen Jobes, who I think does a great job of, of talking about who he's writing to, says that it's not the Jews or the Gentiles, that it's both. It can't just be Jews because in one 14, he describes your former way of ignorance. Well, the Jews didn't have a former way of ignorance. They had the law. They had the scripture. But then she says, some people go, no, yeah, it's got to be Gentiles because they're redeemed from the feudal way of life handed down to them by their fathers. And to the degree the Jews were hoping to be righteous by the law, that is feudal too. He's writing to Jews and Gentiles. That's what D.A. Carson, one of the co-founders of the Gospel Coalition, thinks as well. He says that the writer is neither concerned with Jew nor Gentiles as such, but those who in Christ have become the people of God. He says the emphasis is on what they've become, not who they were. So Peter writes them a very personal and practical letter. It's personal to them. It's practical for them and us because he will speak to our fears, our anxieties, our needs, our hopes. And what they hear and what we hear is that we're strangers and aliens on earth and that we have moral obligations as the redeemed people of God. And over and over and over, as we study this book, we will be pointed to Jesus's grace and mercy, the Holy Spirit's sustaining power, and we'll be challenged to remain faithful and hopeful and become, become more like Christ in our suffering. He's going to call them to a difficult trust and obedience. He's going to, as we've said a couple of times, invite them to join him in surrendering to Jesus, being satisfied in his love and suffering for his name until they see him face to face. But what he calls them to is rooted in rich theological reality related to God's saving mercy in Christ. And he begins the second verse with the Trinity. Look at 1 Peter 1, 2. They're the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He begins with the Trinity. Now there are people that go, hey, Trinity's not even in the Bible. And the word didn't, wasn't used till the third or fourth century, Chase. It's not a, a biblical idea. Well, Trinity is the word that that we came up with to describe what we see in scripture. And it's one God with three persons, one in being, essence, nature, and substance, three divine persons. They have personally distinct personalities and they interrelate to one another perfectly in love. See, the Trinity is right here and it is a reality that goes beyond human reason, but it doesn't contradict, it's not opposed to it. So we're gonna jump into these four phrases that Peter uses to describe the work the Trinity, our God, is doing in them. 
He says you're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, some of you, when I use the word elect and foreknowledge, you go, oh my goodness, he's gonna start talking about isms now. I don't want that. And I'm not. What I'm gonna tell you is that godly people who know and love Jesus vary on what this may mean. What I'm gonna do is tell you what I understand this text to mean from the context of the book and the guy writing it and why I think that. What I think is that God knew them before the foundation of the world, like Ephesians 1 describes, not in some systematic theology-ism sort of way, but he's God the Father. It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, this loving God. He's self-existent. He doesn't need anything. There's this word to describe this reality that he never comes to us in need. He always comes to us in love. And it's this beautiful truth that God has purposed to save these people. I think that that's true, number one, because of what Peter's understanding of election and foreknowledge would have been is an ancient Jewish man understanding it related to both the Jews and now in the church related to Christ. But second, It's because of the language he uses. There are eight times where he references them being connected to election according to the foreknowledge of God in this book. I'm not gonna read all eight, I'm gonna read four. Verse three of chapter one, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God caused it, he caused this effectual thing which is life in Christ in us. How he uses the word call in 115. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. It's a call to salvation and vocation in Christ. The word call in 29. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then for me, at least the linchpin is chapter five, verses 10 and 11. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's going to happen because God has called you to eternal glory. It's kind of an echo of Romans 8 where those he called, he justified, those he justified, he sanctified, those he sanctified, he glorified. This is speaking not to initial salvation but to final salvation. And then in addition, the language language Peter uses about God rejectors in 2.8 would make me believe that this is God knowing them before the foundation of the world and calling them. And I think we've got to wrestle with this. God has the absolute right and providential freedom to direct our affairs, guide our lives, and do what he will to draw us to himself. Getting involved in our lives however he will. God the Father does this. And I got to tell you, I... I love it because I wouldn't have come to him on my own. Very naturally, what I would do, not what I would do, what I did was rebel, was run, was try to do life on my own terms, and it did not work at all. I was broken. And God, by his grace, called me and drew me and wooed me. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing.
Stuart Briscoe, who just passed away speaking about these realities, he said, we love human rights and they're founded in our personhood and our personhood means we're created by God. But Stuart Briscoe says, we need to give more attention to the divine prerogative that God has some thoughts. It's a beautiful thing we would do well to consider. We don't tend to treat God this way. We tend to treat God like this. Hey, God, would you give me a, a great car, a nice house? God, please, kids who don't embarrass me. <laughs> Safe life, cute dog, no hell. But you, can't, you can't tell me what to do, right? You can't tell me who I'm supposed to be. Who do you think you are, God? But Jesus, Jesus called Simon Peter the rock and he's using this transformed man by the power of God that he called to himself to teach believers in Asia Minor that they are made to testify to the greatness of the one who saved them and they're made to testify to his greatness according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the spirit. It's not just that God knew them, it's that the spirit had come into them and is transforming them. Through the scripture, this letter and other letters they're hearing about in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus to make them like Christ. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart and conformed to the image of Christ. Now there are 10 times in this letter that Peter would point them to their sanctification in Christ. I just wanna tell you, of five, in verse five of chapter one, he says, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You're being guarded by faith, kept in Christ. You're being made more like Christ until your final salvation comes. In verses 13 and following, he tells them they're to be sanctified. Their lives ought to look different. They're to be set apart. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy. Be holy in all your conduct. They're to be sanctified. They're to love one another deeply, Jew and Gentile, who do not love one another deeply because they've been born again. They're to love one another deeply. Their lives are being changed. They're told at the beginning of chapter two, put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. There are things to lay aside like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you've tasted the Lord. If the Holy Spirit's in you, you're going to grow. He goes on to tell them that in Christ they'll have sustained power to serve and to suffer and speak truth about Jesus. So if we believe God to be God, that is the right to do whatever he wants with our lives, and he's saved us, then we want to recognize the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit who is working in supernatural ways to make us like Christ and to cause us to be witnesses for Christ. It's according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Again, Peter would have them surrender to Jesus, be satisfied in his love, suffer for his name until they see him face to face. They are saved to be transformed, to be holy, 
to be set apart like Jesus is Lord. So by grace through faith, empowered by his spirit, they set their gaze on Jesus and we're to set our gaze on Jesus. It sounds frightening in a broken world. And it is, but it's not nearly as frightening as it is beautiful when you see how this works out in someone's life. So I'd like to see how this began to work out in Peter's life. So turn over to Luke chapter five. Turn over to Luke chapter five and this is one of the beginning moments. Peter sees Jesus, Jesus is teaching, he's on the scene, people are amazed by his teaching and he's teaching on the shore of the, the, the lake called Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. He's close to Peter's home, the crowd's pressing in on him so much that he doesn't have room. So there are these two groups of fishermen, two partners, James and his brother John, Peter and his brother Andrew, and their boats are right up by the shore and they're cleaning their nets. And Jesus gets one in one of the boats and, and they press out a little bit so that he can sit down and teach. And as they go out, Jesus looks at Peter and says, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Like you put your nets down, you're gonna catch some fish, right? And Simon answered, and if you look in your scripture or in your app, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. It's an exclamation point. Hey, you're the rabbi, I'm the fisherman. Peter knows what he's doing, right? This is his livelihood. He catches fish so that his family can eat. He catches fish so that they can sell and get other food. He knows what he's doing or he wouldn't do it. This is not like if I fish all night and don't catch anything, my pride gets bruised and I need all the help I can get, right? This is a big deal. They're working hard. They're cleaning their nets. We fished all night and didn't catch anything. But he's a polite enough man to say, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they did, something happened that they were not expecting. They enclosed such a large number of fish that their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners, to James and John, come and help. And they filled up their boats with, it took both boats to fill the fish and both boats are sinking. And this isn't like a good day, right? I've had some good days on the water. That's not what this is. They're astonished and everybody else is astonished. Peter's so astonished by the fish that he catches he looks at Jesus and says, depart from me. Depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Now, I've never, I've been with some fishing guides. I've never said that to one of them, right? This is a big deal. Everybody is astonished. And Jesus doesn't tell him he's not. And he doesn't tell him to leave either. He says, don't be afraid, Simon. From now on, you'll be catching men. And they brought their boats to land and they left everything and followed him. I think there are four things that we can learn about Peter as he began to follow Jesus that would help us to think about why he might be writing what he's writing. Let down your nets. He begins to know more about Jesus and his response to this phrase. Let down your nets. He begins to see that this is one who can provide more than he can provide, who knows where the fish are, he's got wisdom more than he has, who has power, he's effectual. When he says to do something, it happens. Let down your nets for a catch and he's 
loving. He gives them what they need and he gives them more than they could have ever imagined. They're astonished. Let down your nets. Peter begins to know more about who Jesus is. But he also begins to know more about himself. When he sees this, he realizes this is not some regular rabbi. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. This is before the confession. He says, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. I don't belong in your presence. I need help. It echoes Isaiah when he saw the Lord. Woe is me, for I'm a sinful man, and I live among sinful people. He begins to understand who he is. But it doesn't just stop there. Thank God. He begins to understand more of God's purpose for his life when Jesus says, don't be afraid, from now on you'll be catching men. I'll take this rough cut, toxic, difficult, or avid endorsement like Andrew Young Man, I'll take him and I'll transform him. There's this purpose and this power when you've been saved by the blood and resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit begins to live inside of us. When you've been moved by him, you can't help but tell people, from now on you'll be catching men. They left everything and followed him. So Peter began to follow Jesus. And over 30 years, he grows in surrender to Jesus. He grows in being satisfied in his love. He grows in suffering for his name. And so he's writing this letter saying to this people, I can't wait to see him face to face. They're the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. See, we can be sanctified. We can trust that God has saved us. We can obey Jesus only because we've been sprinkled by his blood. The Jewish readers of this letter would have thought about the Passover. And Peter tells them, you were not ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. He wants their lives to be transformed because they've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. And that's what's fitting, that he transforms our lives. It takes a long time. In fact, it takes a lifetime because we are prone to wander and he keeps drawing us back. This God who saves us, we can be sure will keep us. And here's the truth. We either believe there's a God who has mercifully made a way for us to be with him forever through the blood of Christ or we don't believe it. Now, if we believe it and we wanna see the sort of transformation that God can bring about in lives growing toward full devotion in Christ, It's gonna mean at least four things that the spirit inside us would well up in us for this growing desire to understand God's plan revealed in scripture. Then as we begin to understand God's plans, God's agenda for the world, we understand that he calls us to submit to his will or surrender to Jesus. Well, as we surrender to Jesus, It brings us to a deeper understanding of who he is, a better knowledge of ourselves. We find out that it's a glad surrender because this surrender leads to lasting joy. And and this is meant to move our hearts to be willing to hear of his purposes and spend our lives toward them being accomplished. 
Peter knew this. He knew this because Luke chapter five is not the only time Peter saw Jesus when he was fishing. Peter has another encounter with Jesus after he rose from the dead. The disciples have gone, Peter and John, they've seen the inside of that tomb that's empty. He appears to them a second time and they're amazed and Peter looks at his friends and says, I'm going fishing, which I think is a great thing to say to your friends. And they say, hey, we'll go too. And they go and they're fishing and they've fished all night and they haven't caught a thing. And Jesus is on the shoreline and they don't understand or recognize that it's him just initially. And so, so he says to them, children, do you have any fish? And they said, no, no. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll, you'll find some, he says. <laughs> and they do. And the net is full. There's a hundred. Three fish, as a matter of fact. And John, the disciple who Jesus loved, John realizes what's going on and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, it's, it's the Lord. And this time, Peter doesn't say, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He ties up his clothes and jumps in the water and starts swimming. He's got to get to Jesus. He's just denied him. I mean, he has blown it just as horribly as you can. Here's Jesus about to die for the sins of the world. And Peter, who said, I'll die with you, denies him three times. But he's been saved according to the foreknowledge of God. God's called Peter and he's going to keep him. He, he's going to be sanctified in the spirit for obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. And so Jesus sees him and just like he's denied him three times, Jesus says, Peter, do, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I, I love you. Well, tend my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Lord? You know I love you. I'll do anything for you. Feed my sheep. To this guy who's blown it, he says, feed my sheep. And so Peter does. 30 years later, he is feeding the sheep of Asia Minor. The elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling by his blood. Now, he's going to tell them a lot of things to do, but before he does that, as he's described who they are in Christ and who they're becoming in Christ, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I think he asked this not because it's a polite greeting, but because grace and peace have been multiplied to him. And when we get grace and we know it, God gets glory. And when we get peace, God gets praise. So like Peter had a decision point and his readers will, we do. When you hear that God has sent his son to give you this new and transformed life, to forgive your sins, to empower you by his spirit, and to develop you for his purpose as his ambassador, you can do one of two things. You can look at that and you can go, no, nah, no. Nah. I hear you, but I'd like to live life 
according to my own prerogative. I think I'm doing okay by myself and I'll just, just head that way. And if that's you, I would, I would just say, see how that works out for you. Many folks have tried it and it's a sad story. It doesn't end well. Or you can, like Peter has seen and like he would have his readers see, you can say, you know, I, I can't settle any longer for being anything less than the Father created me to be in Jesus. So I just want to close with a couple of questions. The first is this. Are we going to put our creature-imposed limits on what God can do with our lives, right? Uh, God, you can have everything but, but my keys. I'm going to hang on to really maybe this keys to my work, maybe it's keys to my house, but I'm going to hang on to this. God, you can have everything but my agenda, right? Can't get rid of my agenda. This got pictures of my family. You can have everything, God, but I won't surrender my kids to you or my spouse to you. God, you can have everything but my wallet. I'd pull out my wallet, but I'm a preacher. I don't even have one, though. It's in my office, right? God, you can have everything but, but what's mine, this hard-earned money that you provided, right? We can put our creature-imposed limits on what God can do with our lives. God, you can have everything, but there is no way. I'll serve. I'll go to soup kitchens. I cannot talk to somebody about Jesus, or maybe you talk to all kinds of people about Jesus and you don't want to go to that soup kitchen. We can put our creature imposed limits on God or we can surrender to Jesus, be satisfied in his love and suffer for his name until we see him face to face. Let's go before God in prayer. Well, Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you and we thank you for your saving power that has been shown to us we thank you for your Holy Spirit that has been given to us. God, there are people in this room that do not know you and need life in you today. Would you awaken them to who you are, draw them to yourself, forgive their sins, and transform who they are? God, as believers, we just need to surrender to you. It is good to surrender to you. It's good to find how satisfying your love is. It is good to suffer for your name because it makes us more like you. It's hard, it's scary, but it's good. And Jesus, we just say we long for you to return. We wanna labor toward that end. We wanna work toward that end. As Bill and Christy and their kids go to the Middle East to do that, as Matt just came back from Egypt doing that, we wanna do that right here in Central Texas for your glory and for our joy. Make us holy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand please?